Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Formation of Vegetable Molds Through the Action of Worms with Observations on Their Habits by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 2 The Part Which Worms Have Played in the Burial of Ancient Buildings. Beaulieu Abbey, Hampshire. This abbey was destroyed by Henry the Eighth and there now remains only a portion of the southern isle wall. It is believed that the king had most of the stones carried away for building a castle, and it is certain that they have been removed. The position of the nave transept was ascertained not long ago by the foundations having been found, and the place is now marked by stones let into the ground. Where the abbey formerly stood, there now extends a smooth, grass-covered surface, which resembles in all aspects the rest of the field. The guardian, a very old man, said the surface had never been leveled in his time. In the year 1853, the Duke of Buccleuch had three holes dug in the turf, within a few yards of one another, at the western end of the nave, and the old tessellated pavement of the abbey was thus discovered. These holes were afterwards surrounded by brickwork, and protected by trap-doors, so that the pavement might be readily inspected and preserved. When my son William examined the place, on January 5th, 1872, he found that the pavement in the three holes lay at a depth of six and three quarters, ten, and eleven and one-half inches beneath the surrounding turf-covered surface. The old guardian asserted that he was often forced to remove worm castings from the pavement, and that he had done so about six months before. My son collected all from one of the holes, the area of which was 5.32 square feet, and they weighed 7.97 ounces. Assuming that this amount had accumulated in six months, the accumulation during a year on a square yard would be 1.68 pounds, which, though a large amount, is very small compared to what, as we have seen, is often ejected on fields and commons. When I visited the abbey on June 22, 1877, the old man said that he had cleared out the holes about a month before, but a good many castings had since been ejected. I suspect that he imagined that he swept the pavements oftener than he really did, for the conditions were in several respects very unfavorable for the accumulation of even a moderate amount of castings. The tiles are rather large, viz., about five and one-half inches square, and the mortar between them was in most places sound, so that the worms were able to bring up earth from below, only at certain points. The tiles rested on a bed of concrete, and the castings in consequence consisted in large part, viz., in the proportion of nineteen to thirty-three, of particles of mortar, grains of sand, little fragments of rock, bricks, or tile, and such substances could hardly be agreeable, and certainly not nutritious, to worms. My son dug holes in several places within the former walls of the abbey, at a distance of several yards from the above-described bricked squares. He did not find any tiles, though these are known to occur in some other parts, but he came in one spot to concrete on which tiles had once rested. The fine mould beneath the turf, on the sides of the several holes, varied in thickness from only two to two and three-quarter inches, and this rested on a layer from eight and three-quarter to above eleven inches in thickness, consisting of fragments of mortar and stone rubbish, with the interstices compactly filled up with black mould. In the surrounding field, at a distance of twenty yards from the abbey, the fine vegetable mould was eleven inches thick. 
we may conclude from these facts that when the abbey was destroyed and the stones removed, a layer of rubbish was left over the whole surface, and that as soon as the worms were able to penetrate the decayed concrete and the joints between the tiles, they slowly filled up the interstices in the overlying rubbish with their castings, which were afterwards accumulated to a thickness of nearly three inches over the whole surface. If we add to this latter amount the mould between the fragments of stones, some five or six inches of mould must have been brought up from beneath the concrete or tiles. The concrete or tiles will consequently have subsided to nearly this amount. The bases of the columns of the aisles are now buried beneath mould and turf. It is not probable that they can have been undermined by worms, for their foundations would no doubt have been laid at a considerable depth. If they have not subsided, the stones of which the columns were constructed must have been removed from beneath the former level of the floor. Chedworth, Gloucester The remains of a large Roman villa were discovered here in 1866, on ground which had been covered with wood from time immemorial. No suspicion seems ever to have been entertained that ancient buildings lay buried here, until a gamekeeper, in digging for rabbits, encountered some remains. Footnote Several accounts of these ruins have been published. The best is by Mr. James Ferrer, in Proceedings of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, Volume 6, Part 2, 1867, page 278. Also, J. W. Grover, Journal of the British Archaeological Association, June 1866. Professor Buckman has likewise published a pamphlet, Notes on the Roman Villa at Chedworth, 2nd edition, 1873, and a footnote, Sir But subsequently, the tops of some stone walls were detected in parts of the wood, projecting a little above the surface of the ground. Most of the coins found here belong to Constance, who died 350 A.D., and the Constantine family. My sons Francis and Horace visited the place in November 1877 for the sake of ascertaining what part worms may have played in the burial of these extensive remains, but the circumstances were not favourable for this object, as the ruins are surrounded on three sides by rather steep banks, down which earth is washed during rainy weather. Moreover, most of the old rooms have been covered with roofs, for the protection of the elegant tessellated pavements. A few facts may, however, be given on the thickness of soil over these ruins. Close outside the northern rooms there is a broken wall, the summit of which was covered by five inches of black mould, and in a hole dug on the outer side of this wall, where the ground has never before been disturbed, black mould, full of stones, twenty-six inches in thickness, was found, resting on the undisturbed subsoil of yellow clay. At a depth of twenty-two inches from the surface, a pig's jaw and a fragment of a tile were found. When the excavations were first made, some large trees grew over the ruins, and the stump of one has been left directly over a party wall near the bathroom, for the sake of showing the thickness of the superincumbent soil, which was here thirty-eight inches. In one small room, which, after being cleared out, had not been roofed over, my sons observed the hole of a worm passing through the rotten concrete, and a living worm was found within the concrete. In another room, worm castings were seen on the floor, over which some earth had by this means been deposited, and here grass now grew. Braiding, Isle of Wight. A fine Roman villa was discovered here in 1880, and by the end of October 
no less than eighteen chambers had been more or less cleared. A coin, dated 337 A.D., was found. My son William visited the place before the excavations were completed, and he informs me that most of the floors were at first covered with much rubbish and fallen stones, having their interstices completely filled up with mould, abounding, as the workmen said, with worms, above which there was mould without any stones. The whole mass was in most places from three to above four feet in thickness. In one very large room, the overlying earth was only two feet six inches thick, and after this had been removed, so many castings were thrown up between the tiles that the surface had to be almost daily swept. Most of the floors were fairly level. The tops of the broken-down walls were covered in some places by only four or five inches of soil, so that they were occasionally struck by the plough but in other places they were covered by from thirteen to eighteen inches of soil. It is not probable that these walls could have been undermined by worms and subsided, as they rested on a foundation of very hard red sand, into which the worms could hardly burrow. The mortar, however, between the stones of the walls of a hypocaust, was found by my son to have been penetrated by many worm burrows. The remains of this villa stand on land, which slopes at an angle of about three degrees and the land appears to have been long cultivated. Therefore, no doubt, a considerable quantity of fine earth has been washed down from the upper parts of the field, and has largely aided in the burial of these remains. Silchester, Hampshire The ruins of this small Roman town have been better preserved than any other remains of the kind in England. A broken wall in most parts from fifteen to eighteen feet in height, and about one and one-half mile in compass, now surrounds a space of about one hundred acres of cultivated land, on which a farmhouse and a church stand. Footnote. These details are taken from the Penny Encyclopedia, article, Hampshire. End of footnote. Formerly, when the weather was dry, the lines of the buried walls could be traced by the appearance of the crops, and recently very extensive excavations have been undertaken by the Duke of Wellington, under the supervision of the late Reverend J. G. Joyce, by which means many large buildings have been discovered. Mr. Joyce made careful colored sections, and measured the thickness of each bed of rubbish, whilst the excavations were in progress, and he has had the kindness to send me copies of several of them. When my sons Francis and Horace visited these ruins, he accompanied them, and added his notes to theirs. Mr. Joyce estimates that the town was inhabited by the Romans for about three centuries, and no doubt much matter must have accumulated within the walls during this long period. It appears to have been destroyed by fire, and most of the stones used in the buildings have since been carried away. These circumstances are unfavorable for ascertaining the part which worms have played in the burial of the ruins, but as careful sections of the rubbish, overlying an ancient town, have seldom or never before been made in England, I will give copies of the most characteristic portions of some of those made by Mr. Joyce. They are of too great length to be here introduced entire. An east and west section, thirty feet in length, was made across the room in the basilica, now called the Hall of Merchants. Figure 9. Legend of Figure 9. Section within a room in the basilica at Silchester. Scale, 1 to 18. End of figure legend. The hard concrete floor, still covered here with the tesserae, was found at three feet beneath the surface of the field which was here level. On the floor there were two large piles of charred wood, one alone of which is shown in the part of the section here given. 
This pile was covered by a thin white layer of decayed stucco or plaster, above which was a mass, presenting a singularly disturbed appearance, of broken tiles, mortar, rubbish, and fine gravel, together twenty-seven inches in thickness. Mr. Joyce believes that the gravel was used in making the mortar or concrete, which has been decayed, some of the lime probably having been dissolved. The disturbed state of the rubbish may have been due to its having been searched for building stones. This bed was kept by fine vegetable mould, nine inches in thickness. From these facts, we may conclude that the hole was burnt down, and that much rubbish fell on the floor, through and from which the worm slowly brought up the mould, now forming the surface of the level field. A section across the middle of another hall in the basilica, 32 feet 6 inches in length, called the ovarium, is shown here in figure 10. Legend to figure 10. Section within a hall in the basilica at Silchester. Scale 1 to 32. End of figure legend. It appears that we have here evidence of two fires, separated by an interval of time, during which the six inches of mortar and concrete with broken tiles was accumulated. Beneath one of the layers of charred wood, a valuable relic, a bronze eagle, was found, and this shows that the soldiers must have deserted the place in a panic. Owing to the death of Mr. Joyce, I have not been able to ascertain beneath which of the two layers the eagle was found. The bed of rubble overlying the undisturbed gravel originally formed, as I suppose, the floor, for it stands on a level with that of a corridor outside the walls of the hall. But the corridor is not shown in the section as here given. The vegetable mould was sixteen inches thick in the thickest part, and the depth from the surface of the field, clothed with herbage, to the undisturbed gravel was forty inches. The section shown in figure eleven represents an excavation made in the middle of the town, and is here introduced because the bed of, quote, rich mould, end quote, attained, according to Mr. Joyce, the unusual thickness of twenty inches. Legend to figure 11. Section in a block of buildings in the middle of the town of Silchester. End of legend. Gravel lay at the depth of forty-eight inches from the surface, but it was not ascertained whether this was in its natural state, or had been brought here and had been rammed down, as occurs in some other places. The section shown in figure 12 was taken in the center of the basilica, and though it was five feet in depth, the natural subsoil was not reached. The bed marked concrete was probably at one time a floor, and the beds beneath seemed to be the remnants of more ancient buildings. The vegetable mold was here only nine inches thick. In some other sections, not copied, we likewise have evidence of buildings having been erected over the ruins of older ones. In one case, there was a layer of yellow clay, a very unequal thickness, between two beds of debris, the lower one of which rested on a floor with tesserae. The ancient broken walls appear to have been sometimes roughly cut down to a uniform level, so as to serve as the foundations for a temporary building. And Mr. Joy suspects that some of these buildings were wattled shits, plastered with clay, which would account for the above-mentioned layer of clay. Turning now to the points, which more immediately concern us. Worm castings were observed on the floors of several of the rooms, in one of which the tessellation was unusually perfect. The tesserae here consisted of little cubes of hard sandstone of about one inch, several of which were loose or projected slightly above the general level. One, or occasionally two, open worm burrows were found beneath all the loose tesserae. 
Worms have also penetrated the old walls of these ruins. A wall, which had just been exposed to view during the excavations, then in progress, was examined. It was built of large flints, and was eighteen inches in thickness. It appeared sound, but when the soil was removed from beneath, the mortar in the lower part was found to be so much decayed that the flints fell apart from their own weight. Here, in the middle of the wall, at a depth of twenty-nine inches beneath the old floor, and of forty-nine and a half inches beneath the surface of the field, a living worm was found, and the mortar was penetrated by several burrows. A second wall was exposed to view for the first time, and an open burrow was seen on its broken summit. By separating the flints, this burrow was traced far down in the interior of the wall, but as some of the flints cohered firmly, the whole mass was disturbed in pulling down the wall, and the burrow could not be traced to the bottom. The foundations of a third wall, which appeared quite sound, lay at a depth of four feet beneath one of the floors, and, of course, at a considerably greater depth beneath the level of the ground. A large flint was wrenched out of the wall at about a foot from the base, and this required much force, as the mortar was sound. Behind the flint, in the middle of the wall, the mortar was friable, and here there were worm burrows. Mr. Joyce and my sons were surprised at the blackness of the mortar in this, and in several other cases, and at the presence of mould in the interior of the walls. Some may have been placed there by the old builders, instead of mortar, but we should remember that worms line their burrows with black humus. Moreover, open spaces would almost certainly have been occasionally left between the large irregular flints, and these spaces, we may feel sure, would be filled up by the worms with their castings, as soon as they were able to penetrate the wall. Rainwater, oozing down the burrows, would also carry fine dark-colored particles into every crevice. Mr. Joyce was at first very skeptical about the amount of work which I attributed to worms. But he ends his notes with reference to the last-mentioned wall by saying, quote, This case caused me more surprise and brought more conviction to me than any other. I should have said, and did say, that it was quite impossible such a wall could have been penetrated by earthworms. End quote. In almost all the rooms, the pavement has sunk considerably, especially toward the middle, and this is shown in the three following sections. The measurements were made by stretching a string tightly and horizontally over the floor. The section, figure 13, was taken from north to south across a room 18 feet 4 inches in length, with nearly a perfect pavement next to the, quote, red wooden hut, end quote. Legend of Figure 13, section of the subsided floor of a room, paved with tesserae at Silchester, scale 1 to 40. End of legend. In the northern half, the subsidence amounted to five and three-quarter inches, beneath the level of the floor as it now stands close to the walls, and it was greater in the northern than in the southern half. But, according to Mr. Joyce, the entire pavement has obviously subsided. In several places, the tesserae appear as if drawn a little away from the walls, whilst in other places they were still in close contact with them. In figure 14, we see a section across the paved floor of the southern corridor or ambulatory of a quadrangle in the excavation made near, quote, the spring, end quote. Legend to figure 14. A north and south section through the subsided floor of a corridor paved with tesserae. The nature of the ground beneath the tesserae 
and on both sides of the broken-down walls unknown. The little cliffs of earth, full of stones and capped with turf, were really at a considerable distance from the corridor, but are necessarily represented in the woodcut as standing close to the corridor. Silchester, scale, 1 to 36. End of figure legend. The floor is seven feet nine inches wide, and the broken-down walls now projected only three-quarter of an inch above its level. The field, which was in pasture, here sloped from north to south, at an angle of three degrees forty minutes. The nature of the ground at some little distance, on each side of the corridor, is shown in the section. It consisted of earth full of stones and other debris, capped with dark vegetable mould, which was thicker on the lower or southern than on the northern side. The pavement was nearly level along the lines parallel to the side walls, but it sunk in the middle as much as seven and three-quarter inches. A small room, at no great distance from that represented in figure thirteen, had been enlarged by the Roman occupier on the southern side, by an addition of five feet four inches in breadth. For this purpose, the southern wall of the house had been pulled down, but the foundations of the old wall had been left buried at a little depth beneath the pavement of the enlarged room. Mr. Joyce believes that this buried wall must have been built before the reign of Claudius II, who died 270 A.D. We see in the accompanying section, figure 15, that the tessellated pavement has subsided to a less degree over the buried wall than elsewhere, so that a slight convexity or protuberance here stretched in a straight line across the room. Legend to figure 15. Section through the subsided floor, paved with tesserae, and of the broken-down building walls of a room at Silchester, which had been formerly enlarged, with the foundations of the old wall left buried, scale one to forty. This led to a hole being dug, and the buried wall was thus discovered. We see in these three sections, and in several others not given, that the old pavements have sunk or sagged considerably. Mr. Joyce formerly attributed this sinking solely to the slow settling of the ground. That there has been some settling is highly probable, and it may be seen in figure 15 that the pavement for a width of five feet over the southern enlargement of the room, which must have been built on fresh ground, has sunk a little more than on the old northern side. But this sinking may possibly have had no connection with the enlargement of the room, for in figure 13 one half of the pavement has subsided more than the other half without any assignable cause. In a bricked passage to Mr. Joyce's own house, laid down only about six years ago, the same kind of sinking has occurred as in the ancient buildings. Nevertheless, it does not appear probable that the whole amount of sinking can thus be accounted for. The Roman builders excavated the ground to an unusual depth for the foundations of their walls, which were thick and solid. It is therefore hardly credible that they should have been careless about the solidity of the bed on which their tessellated and often ornamented pavements were laid. The sinking must, as it appears to me, be attributed in chief part to the pavement having been undermined by worms, which we know are still at work. Even Mr. Joyce at last admitted that this could not have failed to have produced a considerable effect. Thus also the large quantity of fine mould overlying the pavements can be accounted for the presence of which would otherwise be inexplicable. My sons noticed that in one room, in which the pavement was sagged very little, there was an unusually small amount of overlying mould. 
as the foundations of the walls generally lie at a considerable depth, they will either have not subsided at all through the undermining action of worms, or they will have subsided much less than the floor. This latter result would follow from worms not often working down deep beneath the foundations, but more especially from the walls not yielding when penetrated by worms, whereas the successively formed burrows in a mass of earth, equal to one of the walls in depth and thickness, would have collapsed many times since the desertion of the ruins, and would consequently have shrunk or subsided. As the walls cannot have sunk much or at all, the immediately adjoining pavement from adhering to them will have been prevented from subsiding, and thus the present curvature of the pavement is intelligible. The circumstance which has surprised me most with respect to Silchester is that during the many centuries which have elapsed since the old buildings were deserted, the vegetable mould has not accumulated over them to a greater thickness than that here observed. In most places it is only about nine inches in thickness, but in some places twelve or even more inches. In figure eleven it is given as twenty inches, but this section was drawn by Mr. Joyce before his attention was particularly called to this subject. The land enclosed within the old walls is described as sloping slightly to the south, but there are parts which, according to Mr. Joyce, are nearly level, and it appears that the mould is here generally thicker than elsewhere. The surface slopes in other parts from west to east, and Mr. Joyce describes one floor as covered at the western end by rubbish and mould to a thickness of twenty-eight and one-half inches, and at the eastern end by a thickness of only eleven and one-half inches. A very slight slope suffices to cause recent castings to flow downwards during heavy rain, and thus much earth will ultimately reach the neighbouring rills and streams, and be carried away. By this means, the absence of very thick beds of mould over these ancient ruins may, as I believe, be explained. Moreover, most of the land here has been ploughed, and this would greatly aid the washing away of the finer earth during rainy weather. The nature of the beds immediately beneath the vegetable mould in some of the sections is rather perplexing. We see, for instance, in the section of an excavation in a grass meadow, figure 14, which sloped from north to south at an angle of 3 degrees 40 minutes, that the mould on the upper side is only 6 inches, and on the lower side 9 inches in thickness. But this mould lies on a mass, 25 and one-half inches in thickness on the upper side, quote, of dark brown mould, End quote, as described by Mr. Joyce. Quote, Thickly interspersed with small pebbles and bits of tiles, which present a corroded or worn appearance. End quote. The state of this dark-colored earth is like that of a field which has been long ploughed, for the earth thus becomes intermingled with stones and fragments of all kinds, which have been much exposed to the weather. If during the course of many centuries this grass meadow, and the other now cultivated fields, have been at times ploughed, and at other times left as pasture, the nature of the ground in the above section is rendered intelligible, for worms will continually have brought up fine earth from below, which will have been stirred up by the plough whenever the land was cultivated. But after a time a greater thickness of fine earth will thus have been accumulated than could be reached by the plough, and a bed, like the twenty-five and one-half inch mass in figure fourteen, will have been forced beneath the superficial mould which latter will have been brought to the surface within more recent times, and have been well sifted by the worms. End of chapter 4, part 2